Hey, it's Danielle. Would you like a $50 Amazon gift card? Here is how you enter a chance to win. Right now, Failing Motherhood is turning four years old, and it's almost Mother's Day, so we're doing an annual drive for ratings and reviews, which are huge for search rankings, for potential listeners to find us, and for them to size up the quality of the podcast. So if you have been enjoying Failing Motherhood, whether this is your first few times listening or you've been here the whole time, I'm offering extra incentive to put in a quick two to three sentence review inside Apple. When you leave yours, screenshot it and then send it to me over Instagram DM or email. And I am going to give one listener that leaves a review a $50 Amazon gift card on Mother's Day. We have some really exciting failing fatherhood episodes coming up. So please follow the podcast if you haven't yet and leave that rating or review so that more moms and more parents know they are not alone if they feel like they're failing their child on a daily basis. We need each other and I'm so grateful you are here. I just got a like a TikTok message from somebody who said, yeah, my pediatrician said to start crying it out at four months, which there's no research on using it at four months, by the way, four months. And he said he would cry for 15 minutes the first night. And after an hour and a half, I finally stopped and said, I can't do this. So what they find is that it is nowhere as easy or as simple or as fast as any of the books will say. And so not only do they feel exhausted, because these are the kids that are waking up every hour or two, but nothing they have tried works. And none of the books talk about temperament. So they don't say, hey, if your baby's crying for an hour, try this. Or, you know, maybe don't do it this way if you have a more intense alert kid. It's not even on. It's not part of the books at all. And so parents are left to go, wow, why was that such a dumpster fire for me? I must really suck. And they put the blame on themselves. Ever feel like you suck at this job? Motherhood, I mean. Have too much anxiety and not enough patience. Too much yelling, not enough play. There's no manual, no village, no guarantees. The stakes are high. We want so badly to get it right. But this is survival mode. We're just trying to make it to bedtime. So if you're full of mom guilt, your temper scares you. You feel like you're screwing everything up and you're afraid to admit any of those things out loud. This podcast is for you. This is Failing Motherhood. I'm Danielle Batman, and each week we'll chat with a mom ready to be real, sharing her insecurities, her fears, her failures, and her wins. We do not have it all figured out. That's not the goal. The goal is to remind you, you are the mom your kids need. They need what you have, you are good enough, and you're not alone. I hope you pop in earbuds, somehow sneak away, and get ready to hear some hope from the trenches. You belong here, friend. We're so glad you're here. Hey, it's Danielle. I would venture to say that struggling with sleep in early parenting is about as universal as loving the show Bluey. But unfortunately, so is feeling like you're failing your child in this department. With over 20 years of research in the field of studying sleep and infant mental health, 
McCall is here today to make you feel a whole lot better about how you've handled things, no matter how you've handled them. So my guest today, McCall Gordon, has a master's degree in applied psychology from Antioch University, Seattle, where she's a senior lecturer in the graduate counseling psychology program. She also has a bachelor's in human biology from Stanford. She has conducted and presented research on temperament, sleep, and parenting advice at conferences all around the world. She is a certified gentle sleep coach in private practice, as well as a featured provider on the women's telehealth platform Maven Clinic, and has been featured most recently on parents.com. She comes to this work because she had two sensitive, alert, intense children and didn't sleep for 18 years. On today's episode, we talked about it all, starting, of course, with all the ways she felt like she was failing her kids. After we dissect all the reasons why you're likely feeling like you're failing with sleep, we deconstruct the entire sleep industry as a whole, especially within the pillars of American culture. McCall shares her thoughts on how temperament, consumerism, and behaviorism contribute to misinformation and misciting research, which is really important to understand as a parent. And while I had her, I also got her thoughts about sleep apnea, restless legs, and even melatonin. And of course, we talk about cry it out, but it's hope giving. I promise. You're going to leave this episode knowing what you no longer need to worry about, what you do, and how good of a job you're actually doing. I can't wait for you to hear it, so let's dive in. Welcome to Failing Motherhood. My name is Danielle Bettman, and on today's episode, I'm joined by McCall Gordon. Welcome, McCall. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited. Thank you. Of course. So we just talked about how hard we have to focus on making this less than an hour of conversation because we were networking and we were just talking about all the things and geeking out about research and, oh man, we could talk for hours. So I want to make sure that we use our time wisely. And I'm so excited, number one, to have you on because, you know, sleep is one of, probably one of the big, if there's a top five qualifier for feeling like you're failing at parenting, sleep has got to be at the top of that list. <laughs> Yes, so true. And it doesn't have to be. Oh, yes, yes. So I think my qualifier for this episode is if your kid doesn't sleep, McCall probably knows why. (laughs) And it's not your fault, probably. There we go. Yes. Yeah. So I already, you know, shared your bio in the intro, but go ahead and just introduce yourself. Who are you and who's in your family? Uh, Oh, who's in my family? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's a whole different question. So (laughs) I am McCall Gordon. I have a research-based master's degree in infant mental health, but I focused on the research on infant sleep. So that was my whole focus for my master's degree. And then um, I taught research at a local university for years, but for the past seven years now, I've been a certified gentle sleep coach, specializing in working with kids who are just a little more intense and sensitive and alert. And I find are almost 100% of the kids who do not respond to the regular approaches to sleep. And so these parents really think they suck. They really think they've got it all wrong. And their sleep problems are way bigger. So I'm sure there's probably a ton of people listening who fit that bill. 100%. My family, I live and work in Woodinville, Washington, outside of Seattle. And I have two grown live wires myself, two grown, alert, sensitive kids. Yeah. So that's that. And two doggies. Also live wires, I would probably think. (laughs) 
Awesome. <laughs> and I always have to pre-qualify every guest. Have you ever felt like you were failing motherhood? Constantly. I don't think I ever felt like I wasn't. Honestly, this is this is a fact of life of having these kids because nothing you read and certainly none of your friends have the same problem. And then you literally are like, what is the matter with me? And I don't know that there's a great way of doing it without feeling that way. I'm not kidding. I still lay awake nights with a little litany of, you know, those things we do as moms going, Oh, why did I do that? That was a mistake. You know, constant. Yeah. No, I live in that world. Yes. Totally. <laughs> I'd like to be out of that world. <laughs> right. Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> There's a ticket out. Let us know. I really want you to share the analogy you wrote in about being in a batting cage. Oh God. Yes. Okay. So I've never been in a batting cage, just full disclosure. (laughs) I really, I write about it, but it's in my head. So I felt like when I was going to become a mom, I really wanted to know and do it right. I really wanted to be intentional and have the information and really do it the best way I could. So I had this idea that it was like going into a batting cage or maybe like one of those tennis courts where they shoot the balls at you. And I had read up on form. I had the right equipment. I had all the intention to do it, to really swing that bat and hit that ball in the best way possible. And the machine started up, started lobbing balls at me at a pace and at a speed that it was impossible for me to even get the bat up. I mean, I couldn't even get the bat up. All I could do was keep it from hitting me, beating me in the head with a ball. Like there was no form. There was no hitting the ball. There was just trying to stay alive. And I'm not kidding. That really was what it was like. And we all know that kids grow and change. So I'd maybe get the bat up and then my kids would be in the next phase and you were back to square one again, just trying to stand upright. That's pretty apt, I think, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Getting pummeled with baseballs. Yeah. I'm 100% behind that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Baseball or tennis. Tennis balls are a little softer. Maybe that's why I don't use tennis. But yeah, just so fast and so hard and so much bigger than I ever felt prepared for or able to process through. It was just all. There's one other analogy. There was a movie. It was with Nick Nolte and Tracy Ullman. And he's an actor who had a daughter he didn't know about. And he has to go get this little girl and take her back to New York with him. And she's like five and curly headed and darling. And they're sitting in the airplane. And she says, I want my dolly. And he's like, oh, honey, she's in the bottom of the plane. We can't get her. He's being very cool and chill. I want my dolly. More explanation. Finally, she starts screaming and then she goes, Don't hit me. And he's like, I do. And she gets up and runs around the plane and runs into first class. And this flight attendant closes the curtain and he just looks at the flight attendant and goes, I don't know what to do. And I was like, That was also iconic of my feeling of parenting. Like I knew I was supposed to know what to do. And I did not know. I literally didn't know what I was supposed to do in that moment. But that was also pretty constant. Yeah. Yeah. So fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) 
more normal than, you know, we expect that feeling to be when we talk about it. So let's, we're just normalizing that right off the bat. Yeah. And most parents, I mean, the segues into that parenting advice and information idea, parents think the solution is Google, right? Or whatever. Thank goodness. Thank the stars. My kids are old enough that the internet was barely a thing when my first child was born, like not even a useful thing. And I'm really grateful because I would have been one of those parents constantly looking for the new idea, the North Star to guide me through these really bad feelings of, I don't know what I'm doing. And I can say, I think more information is not for sure. It's not the solution because we all know there's 8 million voices out there and none of them particularly necessarily coherent in terms of like, oh, this is my source for everything. I mean, maybe you can find an expert you like. There are a few that really talk about the breadth of parenting. But besides that, like parents are getting their stuff off of Instagram and TikTok and these little tiny snippets of information. And I do not know how parents put that all together in any kind of coherent form. Yeah. Yeah. They might not is the problem. Yeah. And then you don't know which end is up. And really, I would say a lot of my work as a sleep coach is saying, let's just shut all that down. You know, it's not as dire. It's not as hard. It's not as cut and dry. It's not as black and white as all these sources are making it sound. And it's important to remember that advice and research, they're talking about a certain slice of children usually right down the center of that bell curve. If your kid is on one side or the other on whatever it is you're thinking of, that advice is not talking about you anymore. It's just not. And parents do not get that message. We all get that message of like, oh, at eight months, babies should, or babies are, really it's babies are, are crawling. Babies can sleep through the night or whatever. And parents, I think, hear that and say, well, that's the benchmark. That's not a slice of children. And then the variation is huge, which is the reality. They see it as the benchmark to reach. And I really think that's where we get into trouble is that then there's tons and tons of people who feel like they're not measuring up. Mm -hmm. Understandably. It's not the case that baby should be crawling by eight months has a massive window of still normal, faster and slower than eight months. And parents, I don't think get that message. And so they're, you know, running and running and struggling and struggling when they don't have to be. I mean, really, I tell so many parents constantly, that's normal. That's normal. Yeah, that's really normal. Yeah. Did you know most babies are doing it that way right now? Mm. How reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) but so it's also just true. And it's funny. It's too bad that it has to be a shock or a surprise or an unusual thing to tell parents on the flip side of that. I also hear parents with babies with identifiable problems and the pediatrician is the one going, that's normal. That's normal. It's like, no, no, that's not normal. That's actually something. And that's what makes us feel like we can't trust our gut because then we have these conflicting messages from professionals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's an excellent point. They've got you coming and going. 
right? Like parents will take a three month old baby and say, the book says I have to let him start crying. That doesn't feel right, but the experts say I need to. Okay. Ding. Number one. Then they go, you know, my baby's really screaming. I think he's got like reflux or something going on. So they go to their pediatrician and the pediatrician says, no, that crying is normal. You just need to do more crying it out. Yeah, you're right. It's discounting gut feelings on both sides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's awful. So hard. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive into really just, you know, a whole bunch of controversial things, what specifically felt really hard about your early years of motherhood? If you could just Give us a glimpse, a window into those years of yours. Oh, what wasn't hard? I had a really long labor. So right, and and you hear this right from the get-go. It was like, wow, this is so much harder than I thought. My daughter had colic. So screaming, crying for eight hours a day. And I was, I don't want to say I was by myself. I mean, I had my husband, but he was at work and I didn't have family around. So I was on my own kind of with this screaming child nothing worked. The stuff would all say, oh, you'll do this, you know, X, Y, or Z and your baby will soothe. And then you'll get the feeling of, I know what I'm doing. I never got that ever, not once. And so she was just outside the box from the get-go. And that was pretty constant. I mean, that she's 28. It's still like, I mean, she's still outside the box really. Yeah. That was that tracked. So it was just a lot of work and a lot of worry and a lot of just hoping that I was doing it as best I could. Right. Because nothing, we were even doing all the attachment parenting stuff because that was going to be supposedly some kind of cure all. It was not, it was not. So I've got a really good picture of both ends of the spectrum that neither end works for everybody. It really, nothing is a magical cure. And then I had my son, they were 20 months apart, which I have to say is too close. (laughs) I'm at 15 months and I I agree. (laughs) Too close. Yeah. So it was just busy. It was just busy and they were great and wonderful, but I just never, I don't feel like I ever got my feet underneath me to feel like, okay, I got the hang of this. Never, not once. And one of the things you said that struck me the first time we talked was you said, if I had given myself a break, she could have had one too. Oh yeah. During labor. Yeah. So that was another thing that happened that set sort of a template, which is that I vowed again, batting cage, I was not going to do any kind of pain relief. I was like, nope, I can do it. Rawr, you know, oh, I can do it. Cause I also wanted it to be okay for her. So I didn't want to do anything that was potentially, you know, going to harm her. But it was a long, long labor from moment one. It was hard. And I see the template. And I remember at one point, you know, my labor had started at like 11 at night. So I went a number of hours without sleep. And I was like, okay, I asked the nurse, it was like, what would it take for me to just get a little bit of sleep? And she was like, well, you could have some morphine. I was like, wow, I can't take aspirin, but morphine's okay. (laughs) And I said, well, that's, will the labor keep going while I'm sleeping? She said, oh no, no, it won't. It'll stop. I was like, hell no, no, like we're going to keep going. And now I look back on that and I thought, you know, I bet that was a hard process for the baby as well. And if I had said, okay, I'm going to do something so that I have more stamina 
might it given her a break as well? And I mean, I'll never know the answer to that, but it was something that played out and that I often tell moms now, which is that, you know, I tried to tough it out so many times and I know that I wasn't a good mom on many days because I was just exhausted. And if I had prioritized getting a little teeny break every day, yeah, it wouldn't have solved anything. It wouldn't have solved the problem, but it might've given me a tiny little bit of gas in my tank so I could think more clearly on some days. That was a big, you know, mistake in a way that, or a blind spot in me that I really am quite vocal about with new moms. Yeah, you got to get little teeny breaks and know that you might not feel like it's doing anything in the moment, but it totally is. Totally is. Yeah. The compound interest just either builds up or erodes away, either one. Right. Yeah. I remember just being frustrated. I remember one day my husband goes, just please just go take a walk. And I was, you know, I was like chronic. I was a bad day. And I said, but I'm just going to have to come back. (laughs) You know, like I was that tired. But in my mind, a walk wasn't going to solve my problem. So therefore, I wasn't going to do it. And that was really dumb, 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 dumb. Yeah, looking back. But I mean, you're speaking to the people who need to hear it, likely, because... I know, right? Yeah. Don't do what I did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't be me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the value of hindsight. And we'll all have things to turn around and say, I should have done that differently. So there's no getting out of motherhood regret-free, I don't think. Yes. Yes. I'd like to talk to that person. (laughs) I sometimes, (laughs) no, but I sometimes wonder, and I, maybe it's not possible now, but I sometimes wonder if parents who are doing their parenting in a very congruent way with the way they were raised, right? They're like, because I think there is some parenting that becomes hardwired based on your own experience as a child and the stuff that you saw. And that stuff is easy to recreate. And I sometimes wonder if there are parents who are parenting similarly from their own parents, and maybe they're in a community, they have, there's lots of support and very easy children, maybe. If you can get out of this going, yeah, I rock. I feel great. I don't know. Maybe now with all the information, you can't escape that anymore. I'm not sure. <laughs> Write into us and tell us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> tell us your secret if you're there. Or a lot of times it's, I feel like I'm doing really great, batting a thousand with my, you know, the first child. And then that gives you the too much confidence going into the second. And then you have to forget everything you learn. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. That's the other thing is that I think that parents don't know until it happens is that you don't just roll out the second one right? Like you're like, oh, well, I've got the whole thing done. Now I just roll it out. Either you get kid amnesia, which I've seen parents have a lot. If there's a gap, right? They're like, I've totally forgot what we did for the first one. Or the second one is so totally different from the first that it's like having a new kid. I've seen that frequently. Yeah, definitely. So 
big emotions from little people are running the show at your house. Is that right? Do they fall apart when something doesn't go their way? Ugh, just once. Why can't they accept the fact that the answer is no? Am I right? The struggle is real. You're not alone and you're in the right place. When your days are filled with relentless pushback, it is so hard to feel like a good parent, especially when your in-laws aren't shy and sharing how they think your kids just need a good spanking. Every time you lose it when they lose it, you feel like a failure. The worst part is, without addressing the root of your child's behavior, you're doomed to play a fruitless game of whack-a-mole, reacting rather than preventing the next conflict. And next time, nothing's going to go differently. The good news is, when you have a handful of effective discipline tools in your pocket, you're able to step into full confidence as their parent. Parenting actually becomes a whole lot easier. I promise, you're not failing them. You just need more tools. So if you have a tiny human who's full of love and yet so, so difficult, if you can only be so nice for so long, if you've tried everything and still feel defeated on the daily, my free class, Authentic and Unapologetic, is for you. In this free training, I share five huge misconceptions in parenting strong-willed kids that inadvertently invite defiance, four mistaken goals they're using their behavior to meet and what to do about it, how to let judgment roll off your back and truly feel like the parent your kids need, and why what you're currently doing just isn't working and isn't going to anytime soon. So go to parentingwholeheartedly.com slash unapologetic to access this exclusive free training immediately. That's parentingwholeheartedly.com slash unapologetic. The link will be in the show notes. So you specialize in live wires. Go ahead and just define what that is and kind of how you came to that realization. Yeah. So there's lots of terms for different kind of constellations of temperament in the ballpark of what I'm talking about. So spiritedness, Dr. Sears talks about high needs kids. There's highly sensitive kids. That's all in a similar zone as a live wire. Live wire, I like the term just because it sort of speaks to kids who have just a little more current running through their wiring. So these kids can be not all of these things, but they're just a notch or four above other kids on things like alertness and social like engagement. People will say it's like he has FOMO. If you've said that about your kid, you totally have a live wire. Just don't even question it. <laughs> FOMO, kind of intense, meaning everything's a big deal. Doesn't have to be negative. It's everything's a big deal. Persistent as all get out. Perceptive, doesn't miss a thing. Hates transitions. Often sensory sensitive. These kids hate the swaddle. They may hate the car seat. They're the ones that you try to transfer them to the crib and it's like you've got a stick of dynamite, right? Like the minute they hit the crib, their eyes pop open. You have to start all over again. 
these are the kids that like to be bounced on yoga balls versus a rocking chair. There are certain characteristics that seem to be really consistent across many, 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 many kids. So you're like, well, this seems like a thing. And it certainly was for my daughter. You know, the minute I met her, when they took her away for a while and they brought her back in in one of those little glass bassinets, and she, it was not like that fuzzy newborn kind of thing. It was like laser beams. Like she was looking at me straight as an arrow. And I thought, is that normal? (laughs) Is that what newborns do? (laughs) Weird. And that's what a lot of parents will say. So I came to it because this was my experience. Like my child was just not like the other ones I was seeing or reading about. And what that does to you as a parent is, again, it puts you farther outside that parenting circle where you feel like this is not what I signed up for. This is so much harder. Nothing is working the way they say it's going to. And sleep is a thousand percent on that list. Yeah. These kids sleep. It's just way harder, right from usually right from the start, like from birth. They just don't really sleep. And what do parents come to you believing that is like a myth or that is like, you know, way off base or, you know, is it just all self-blame? Like where, you know, how do they come to you? Uh, Well, they're often extremely exhausted because, and I did some research on the effective temperament on sleep and sleep training. And these parents have usually gone through all the methods. They're like, oh, I just got a, like a TikTok message from somebody who said, yeah, my pediatrician said to start crying it out at four months, which there's no research on using it at four months, by the way. Four months. And he said he would cry for 15 minutes the first night. And after an hour and a half, I finally stopped and said, I can't do this. So what they find is that it is nowhere as easy or as simple or as fast as any of the books will say. And so not only do they feel exhausted, because these are the kids that are waking up every hour or two, but nothing they have tried works. And none of the books talk about temperament. So they don't say, hey, if your baby's crying for an hour, try this. Or, you know, maybe don't do it this way if you have a more intense alert kid. It's not even on. It's not part of the books at all. And so parents are left to go, wow, why was that such a dumpster fire for me? I must really suck. And they put the blame on themselves because the sleep advice never says, hey, this isn't going to work for every kid. Most of them say, if you do it right, this will work for every child at every age in every family context. And that it cannot be farther from the truth. I mean, that's honestly just, can I say it's a lie? It's just a lie. Yeah. Cause it's either gotta be, if it fails, it's either gotta be you know, my fault as the person doing the intervention, or it's got to be something else. And if they're not giving me any other reason, it's got to be that I did it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Which is bizarre. I mean, if we could have a whole conversation about kind of the bonkers assumptions and meta messages in sleep research and advice, because a lot of it is just darn crazy making. Well, yeah, I kind of wanted to get into that next. Yeah. Yeah, they'll say, start early because babies are malleable. But oh, by the way, don't start a bad habit because babies will never change. What? That's, you can't be both of those things. You can't have both of those things. 
you know, you better start early or you're going to develop bad habits. Well, we don't tell parents not to carry their children because they'll have a bad carrying habit that the baby will never learn to walk. We know babies will walk when they're old enough and they have the infrastructure to do it. But for some reason, we have gotten crazy about sleep skills and sleep habits. And we're telling parents to do things at crazy early ages where babies have almost nothing going for them. And we're, we're worried about habits. We're worried about sleep crutches and all this negative, shamey stuff that's just not necessary. And I think it's on every parent, not just parents of live wires. They're particularly struggling, but all parents, because I talked to hundreds of parents a month in my telehealth work, parents of three week old babies who are like, well, I've been told don't hold this baby too much or they'll get used to it. Three weeks. Like that baby's just barely figuring out gravity and air. Like let's give them a break, shall we? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so parents are all, you know, I've gotten people who are pregnant wanting to know all about sleep so that they do it right. Again, that batting cage thing. I really want to do it right. And, you know, I have to say, look, you can breathe. You have time. You have time to try things out. You have time to figure out who this baby is, who you are. You literally cannot make a mistake. You can't. That you can't just recover from or make a different choice. This idea of bad habits, if I could erase it from parents' consciousness and from every source of parenting advice, I totally would. Because that's the one, that's the piece that's awful. Parents will go, well, I'm sorry. I mean, they think that they know what I want to hear. And so they're, they tell me like, okay, um, you're a sleep coach. So I know, I know I'm doing all the bad things. I'm holding my one month old while I sleep. It really works, but I really, I know it's a bad habit. My heart absolutely breaks for them. Because not only is it not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing for little babies, for them to be near you and on you, on listening to your heartbeat, listening to your breathing. It actually is tuning their system. So being on you is where a brand new baby needs to be. And so parents have that instinct that it's the right thing to do, but they're made to feel guilty and worried about it. And I, I really think that that's um, a bad thing that we're doing to parents. I think it's bad. Oh, so agree. And like, it's so much bigger than even just that. So in our conversation before, we kind of zoomed out to like the sleep industry as a whole and, you know, kind of just looking at that from your angle, which remind the people your credibility factors, because, you know, it's not just like, a, you know, mom that didn't get it right the first time and is angry, right? Like remind them of your credibility in the research field so that they can really take you seriously. (laughs) Yes. So I got into graduate school because I was reading magazines at the time that said, oh, it's really important to be responsive in the first few years, you know, when the brain is critical periods, all that. But by the way, start earlier and earlier to start letting babies cry it out at night. And I thought that just, I don't get that, that there must be research. There must be research. It must be really proven that that's okay to do. And so I started looking and I wasn't finding anything, but 
when I finally decided to go to graduate school, that was the focus of my whole field. So literally for more than 20 years now, I've looked at all the research that goes underneath all that sleep advice. So when advice says, cry it out as fast, I'm looking at the research. Well, how fast actually was it in the research? It totally works. Well, how well did it work in the studies that they're citing? For example, in studies, across studies, the extinction, they call it, did not work for between 25 and 50% of the sample in the studies. 25 and 50%. Parents do not get that message from the research. So I really know that work backwards and forwards. And I know the shenanigans, honestly, that have happened in translating that research to parents in books and sleep books and articles and things like that. Because it's really easy to go, research says with this big, broad brush, and then to say something that is totally wrong. Here's a great example. Sleep problems cause ADHD. Okay, first of all, research will never say cause, number one. Two, they're correlated. That means big sleep problems in if they're unaddressed, if you just let them go, those kids were more likely to ultimately be diagnosed with ADHD. My perspective on that is that there's something that underlies both, which is sensory sensitivity. Kid who has sensory processing difficulties will have problems sleeping and they may get diagnosed, potentially incorrectly, but diagnosed with ADHD. Did the sleep cause ADHD? Not in any stretch of the imagination, but that's in many sleep books. You better get that baby sleeping or they'll get ADHD. Like that's not a thing. It's not a thing. Drives me bonkers. So (laughs) what is the, in your opinion, the underlying motivation of a lot of the misciting of research or the kind of fear based marketing or, you know, a lot of the things that come across as, you know, the things to buy or the things to watch out for, where is that all coming from? It's things to buy. We cannot discount this wonderful man, Philip Cushman wrote a great book on, it's called Becoming America, Becoming the Self, I think. And it's all about sort of our American culture and psychology. And he identifies three cultural values, self-reliance, autonomy or independence and consumerism. And if you think about sleep advice, very, very, those are very strong, right? Autonomy and self-reliance. A baby has to be in charge of their own sleep. And then consumerism, a baby needs to be in their own room. Okay. Then they're going to need a crib and a monitor and a, you know, all the stuff, all the gadgets. We have to remember, they say that the parenting consumers is a recycling market, meaning you get people who go out of having a baby, but new people come in and they're brand new. And then they go out of being babies and then a new crop comes in. So it's this very specific kind of regenerating market who's very vulnerable to wanting to do the best for their baby. And now we just have a million different, you know, swaddles and a million different gadgets that you can put on your baby to monitor them while they sleep and cameras. And I mean, it's a huge thing. So we can't, it doesn't mean that's all bad. It's just, we have to acknowledge that there can be an underlying motivation. 
I would say that people who write sleep books truly want people to get better sleep. I really, I do. I think they do, but they're not, they're only serving a small subset of the population. And that means there's a big swath of parents who are not served by that information because their baby is not that baby or their child is not that child. You know, you take a mellow child and they're having a little bit of a meltdown and you can go, hey, buddy, how's it going? You know, you do the most minor thing and that kid looks up at you and goes, thanks, mom. You know, like I always thought of TV parents, right? Those TV parents. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> After school special. That never happened for me, right? Never happened. <laughs> you know, and then, like I said, you try what the books say and it blows up in your face and then they don't give you a plan B. They don't say, hey, if this doesn't work, try this other thing. They just say, oh, you just have to try harder mm -hmm. or buy this new book. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> buy this new book. So it sounds like they're like temperament is a huge thing that affects sleep. Yeah. And, you know, the way that you need to view the sleep industry. Consumerism is another one because, of course, there's going to be another new product around the corner for the next, you know, season of parents to buy into. Right. Like the Merlin's Magic Sleep Suit. I mean, yep, we definitely had one of those. Yeah. So <laughs> we are, I was right there with you. Yeah, those are good <laughs> until Academy of Pediatrics said, oh, no, can't use those anymore. <laughs> You're like, oh, great. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Another reason to feel like I did something to harm my baby. And then, like, the other one we talked about was behaviorism. Yeah. So, like, how does that play into some of these plans that are created? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's another bonkers thing. So, all of sleep, search and advice, all of it, the whole cry it out thing is based in behaviorism. Behaviorism means it was kind of came into being in the 1920s. And it was the idea that babies are a blank slate and literally the only thing they become is based on whatever happens to them in the environment. So they are 100% a product of experience, which we absolutely know is not true. If someone said that about babies right now, they would be laughed out of the room, right? Like, we don't believe that. But that's what sleep is all about, is that babies only will respond to what we do and what we reinforce. So it's all about reinforcement for certain behaviors. So the behavior is waking and crying. And we, when we go in and try to help the baby, that's reinforcing the waking and crying. So it, from that perspective, the crying has, A, no meaning at all. The crying is totally meaningless, benign, and the baby brings nothing to the table. No biology, no temperament, no nothing. It's all behavior. It's all boiled down to behavior. And that's why they also say, if it doesn't work, you did it wrong, because there are no other factors according to behaviorism. Behaviorism zeroes out every other variable besides what they call the operant behavior, so waking and crying, and whatever the parent does. Now, again, we don't use behaviorism in any other aspect of child development. We don't. I mean, we used to say with temper tantrums, right, that you just have to put them in a timeout and leave the room because if you give it attention, it'll keep happening. I don't think we say that to people anymore. I mean, you'd know better than me, but I don't think that's a thing anymore. <laughs> it's still out there. A lot of in-laws will chime in and say that. <laughs> 
professionals aren't endorsing it. Hopefully not. Because we understand. Yes. We understand that there are lots of reasons for meltdowns and, you know, different strategies. We don't just look at it as a meaningless behavior, but waking and crying is somewhat meaningless, whatever. They also see crying as a totally benign activity with zero impact on the child or on the parent, really. I mean, they acknowledge the impact on the parent, but they do it in a very shamey way. They always go, well, the biggest obstacle to the true implementation of extinction is parents' lack of ability to withstand crying. So number one, it's looked at as weak and misinformed. They'll say, well, parents just don't understand. They just don't, you know, it's so gross. So what we have to do, rather than giving them an alternative approach, we just have to talk them into being better at waiting out the crying. So there's a lot of work on what they call cognitive restructuring, talking parents into it, telling parents that it's okay to do all kinds of this work, rather than saying, hey, huh, this crying thing's not working for everybody. Maybe we should come up with a different idea. They don't. They just double down on the behaviorism. Is that similar to the limit setting disorder you mentioned? Yes. Oh, my God. So research gets done, right? And researchers like to jump on a train that's already running. They don't want to start a new train. So the train got running on extinction, on behaviorism. People started jumping on. Then suddenly you have more studies. Then someone says, oh, great, let's do a review of all these studies. And then you get a lit review. Then you get somebody else doing something called a meta-analysis. Now they look at this train and they go, look at what do we know across all these studies? And then someone says, huh, we should write this up for pediatricians. And suddenly it's the thing to be done. And then people go, well, extinction really does have the most research. It's like, yeah, because no one is doing other work. They're not starting new trains. They're just jumping on the one that already exists. And so, yes, it's become this field called behavioral sleep medicine. And they actually have diagnoses of disorders. And one of them is called sleep onset disorder, proto-dysomnia, or some big fancy word. And that just means a baby who or a child who can't fall asleep. And then there's another one called limit setting disorder. And they're not talking about the baby. They're talking about the parent not being able to set a limit, meaning let the baby cry it out. It's bananas. It's really like this structure that's been built. And what I'm trying to do is critique the foundation of it. And people are like, yeah, but look at this big, tall building. And it's like, yeah, but The whole premise needs to be rethought, right? Yeah. We need a new premise. We need a whole new idea, which is, you know, it's just a little thing I'm trying to do. (laughs) Yeah, like you do. No big deal. Just a little thing. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm kind of, honestly, there's moments where I'm scared to death because people have very strong feelings. I'm sure. And again, this is kind of a bastion of research. Like it's a whole big field with very smart people. And I'm sort of sitting here going, um, I mean, it's like, I say, it's like emperor's new clothes. I'm like, um, something's not working here. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) So to not have listeners walk away even more confused and overthinking and, you know, just lost, 
what hope can you give and what things can they take away that are tangible that you know do matter and that they can focus on and maybe reframe in a healthy way? Right. Perfect. I'll do it fast. Pre-six months, really, you can do whatever works. Honestly, there is nothing wrong. If sleep is okay and manageable, you do you. It's all good. You can do whatever works right up until the moment you decide to change. There's also no too late for working on sleep. Any moment that you decide things are not working for you, you can change them. There is no such thing as too late. I don't get that idea. I just have not seen it happen. If you have a live wire, bless your heart. You do not suck as a parent. You just have a harder kid who's worse at sleep. But I promise you they're incredibly smart and incredibly sensitive and movers and shakers. Yay. (laughs) Yes. We love them over here. Tired parents are going, yay. Yes. (laughs) The last piece is that there are alternatives to the regular crying it out. So sleep training is synonymous with crying it out. You do not have to leave the room. You do not have to let them scream their head off. I'm trained in the sleep lady approach, which is allows you to stay with them and then gradually wean down what you do. But listen, honestly, parents can make their own method. It's not rocket science. Whatever you're doing to help your baby go to sleep or your child, do less. If you've got a toddler and you're fully lying with them for an hour and a half, sit up in the bed and then sit on the floor and then start moving. They're not going to love it. You're not going to do something that the child goes, hey, no big deal. They're going to hate it, but that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. It's okay that they'll hate it because you're right there. You're supporting them. You're encouraging them. You're just not going to do the work. So there are alternatives. They're just, they don't get as much press as, again, the train leaving the station. There are other trains that you can get on, I promise. And for the parents that years ago now did do some sort of cry it out, I don't also want them to hear that they did it wrong and they're bad and, you know, they should sit with that regret for 20 more years. No, (laughs) listen, no, thousand percent, bless their hearts, because people, you know, A lot of people use it and it is truly no big deal. Honestly, I always tell people if you did it and it was easy and quick and not a lot of drama, there are plenty of people that that's true for. Good for you. If you did it and it was a lot of drama, but you made it through, listen, that for years and years, that was literally the only option. And if you were losing your mind with sleep and that was the only option, a thousand percent, I'm so glad that you got through it. My big message is from now forward, you shouldn't feel bullied into using it. You don't have to use it, but if you do, or you want to, or some babies, that's your literally your only choice because staying with them doesn't really work. That's okay. We just don't want it to be the only choice. That's my only, you know, soapbox message. You're going to bring somebody to tears just with that message alone. I I know it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel bad for people. My mom still, you know, how old am I? And she was pregnant. They were losing their mind. I kept losing my pacifier. I was like 18 months old. And they let me cry one night. And I think to this day, my mom still feels bad about it. (laughs) I've said, mom. It's okay. I I think I'm fine. (laughs) Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Yes. Oh, but it's so hard. It just eats away at you. You want to get it right. You want to get it right. 
Oh, just, yeah. But you don't even have the capacity. You don't have the capacity. And really, I also tell parents, give yourself lots of grace. Give yourself lots of, be really gentle with yourself because I remember that feeling that I don't know what to do uh, feeling of like, I know I need to know what to do. I'm so upset. I'm so afraid. I'm so at a loss. And your kid still needs you. There's no moment to hit pause. There's no morphine to take a break and come back to it. It just keeps coming at you. And that's what parenting is like. So know that's going to happen. Know it happens to all of us. And just give yourself a huge, you know, big pat on the back for working as hard as you are. I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to do that myself today. Yes, me too. Me too. That is the heart behind this whole podcast. So we can't go an episode without mentioning that for sure. And while I have your time, we will throw out that asterisk too, that there may be other things going on like sleep apnea Mm -hmm. or terrors or restless legs. So what do you want to throw out as a caveat about that? Yeah, real fast. Just really, really fast. If your child snores outside of a cold, you know, or breathes through their mouth more chronically, um, no kid should really snore if they don't have a cold. So get that checked. Kids, bad sleep, it can be related to obstructed breathing. So just get it checked. In littler kids, lip and tongue tie, huge. It wasn't a thing when I was a mom, but it can impact feeding. That Therefore, it can impact their breathing. Even older kids who might have not gotten that diagnosed, it can impact their breathing because it impacts how their mouth is oriented. If you've had really bad sleep problems, and this means it takes your child an hour or more to fall asleep and or they're awake for an hour or two every night, restless, kicking, standing, can't get comfortable. Little kids can have restless legs syndrome, believe it or not. Or if they complain and you think it's just growing pains, almost 100% low ferritin. I would tell people contact me or on my website, there is an article called, you know, the low ferritin, the cause of chronic sleep problems. It's more common than you think. If you have a really big, bad sleep problem that has not moved, I see it more frequently than you would expect. And pediatricians are not looking for it. So I do know lots of people who are really, it's bad. It's bad, bad, bad. One of my first moms that I found this in had to stand with her 15-month-old from 12 to 5 in the morning. Oh, no. She had to stand with him. Other parents had to get their three-year-old and drive him in the car every time he woke up because that's the only way he'd go back to sleep. So if you have big, like the problem is huge, contact me or read this article and I'm happy to talk to people about that if they think it sounds like them. Yeah. I think it's important to balance out what we don't need to worry about and what is worth worrying about. That way we know where we're at on the spectrum. You know what I mean? (laughs) Totally. Totally. I often tell parents like, look, there's normal waking. There is like slightly higher waking due to a sensitive kid. And then there's like, my baby's waking up every 45 minutes or an hour. Then we go, huh, that's a little more than we'd expect. Let's just rule some stuff out, right? Let's rule out feeding issues, reflux, all the things. So hundred percent there's, if you're up in that zone of like, okay, this is even more than we'd expect for a sensitive kid. It's time to really push to get it checked out. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have 
you know, you might not want it on the record, but do you have an opinion on melatonin? I don't because it's a hormone, right? It's a hormone. People need to, though, also remember that melatonin is only for sleep onset. It is not a sleeping supplement. It will not keep your child asleep. It, all it does is technically help them go to sleep. But you always have to check with your pediatrician for dosage and safety and all of that. So I just, <laughs> I defer that one. But as long as people know, like I said, it's not a panacea. It's not going to all of a sudden make your kid sleep through the night. Mm-hmm. That won't happen. And okay, that's super good to to just throw out there because yeah, I think it's still really unregulated and unresearched from overall, right? Yeah. And also just important to know that there's lots of parents, especially with live wires who have in, I think, tucked away in their head, a little magical wish that there is something they could do that's not sleep training that will fix sleep or that something they can do that their child won't notice that they can just slide in there and suddenly their child is going to go to sleep. And I get the magical thinking. I really do or the wishful thinking, but chances are that there's not a thing that's going to suddenly, you know, there's no suit, there's no supplement that's just automatically going to make your child a great sleeper. It's going to take some work. Boo. Tough love. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So is there anything else that you feel like moms or listeners need to hear overall that it's just always on your heart and you want to share? Yeah. Sleep is not the most important thing you will ever do for your child, right? It's one battle. It's one battle that you're going to fight because eventually that child will sleep. And then the next battles are coming down the pike. So, you know, that's a good part of kind of having a longer view is like, I wish sleep were the only frontier. I wish, I wish it was smooth sailing after that, but they come fast and furious. And so just know that your child is not going to be it's not make or break that you've got to get sleep handled right now. And then your kid will have this smooth, perfect future. Sleep is great. We need it. They need it. It's great, but it's not the be all and end all of your parenting journey. It's just one small bump in a very long, I say the parenting road is long. Pace yourself. Pace yourself. Pack snacks. Pace yourself and pack snacks. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wear good shoes. (laughs) It's a long road. Yeah. It's so true. And then yet all of a sudden it'll be like a blink of the eye and like that was the longest, shortest years. Yep. Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that. That phrase. So true. So true. I remember people would go, oh, this time it goes so fast. And I'd be like, does it? Sort of feels like a glacier. It's like, no, it's forever. And I can tell you, it's when they hit middle school that all of a sudden someone hits the fast forward button. And I know for people with babies, it sounds like a million years and it kind of is, but boy, oh boy, that last part is fast. It's fast. Yeah. Yeah. It speeds up. I think every year kind of speeds up on the last. It does. It speeds up. Yeah, for sure. Oh, it's cruel. So how can listeners connect with you? Yeah, all of my website and socials are all under little live wires, all, you know, kind of smushed together one word. So TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, website, little live wires. And eventually I do have a contract for a book, but it's going to be out like end of 2024. So I'll let people know, but 
It's going to be a very short book, very easy to read. <laughs> nice. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Well, whenever it's out, I will tag it to the show notes because, you know, people listen to episodes forever into the future. So that will be an awesome resource. And thank you for taking the time to to put that all into development. So the last question that I ask every guest that comes on is how are you the mom that your kids need? Oh my goodness. Wow. That's a great question. Am I? I guess I am. I would never have. I mean, I thought they're, I was just the mom that they got. Well, I learned that I'm a sensitive, intense, engaged, alert adult and who wanted them to be fully in their own power, right? I didn't ever want to diminish the, I wanted to be able to hold both the upsides and challenges of their temperament, right? So knowing that if they were putting up a fight, I thought, yeah, I want them to be persistent ultimately. So I, really felt like I held all of it, the good and the bad and the dark and the light for them and tried to see their sort of better angels, even in those horrible moments. Now I just have to do that for myself. Eight. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Yeah. Introspection. Hmm. Right. I'll let you chew on that. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. Uh-huh. No, that's so perfect though, because it fits with everything you shared already. And it sounds like they are really lucky to have you taking this whole thing on from where it started to where it is now. And, you know, you can only do that when it's that personal passion project that comes from, you know, this desire inside you to want to do well for your kids first. And then, you know, it flows from there. So you can totally see it's so evident. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I tell people, it's like, I don't come to this work because I nailed sleep at all. Like I know what you are feeling. I know what that fatigue is. I know what that feeling of desperation and helplessness and hopelessness is. So I think that's sort of some of the secret sauce because you have to understand that with parents. Yep. That they're not coming to this just, oh, cause I didn't think of doing it a different way. It's like, no, no, no. They're at a low ebb and we have to build them up. Yes. You have, you have meeting them exactly where they're at and you can do that really well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. I feel like we did it. We got to all the things and uh, I cannot wait to share this episode. I feel like every parent needs to hear it. So great. Thanks again for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Failing Motherhood. Your kids are so lucky to have you. If you loved this episode, take a screenshot right now and share it in your Instagram stories and tag me. If you're loving the podcast, be sure that you've subscribed and leave a review so we can help more moms know that they are not alone if they feel like they're failing motherhood on a daily basis. And if you're ready to transform your relationship with your strong-willed child, and invest in the support you need to make it happen. Schedule your free consultation using the link in the show notes. I can't wait to meet you. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. I believe in you and I'm cheering you on. Thank you.